Something that I come back to is I think of risk as a muscle, and I don't know why we all don't treat it that way. Meaning like exercise early and often or don't expect to have much of a risk tolerance at all. Hi everyone and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I'm an artist and a marketer. And on today's show, we have Jesse Janae, the founder and CEO of Lumi, a company reimagining the packaging process. And we recorded this episode live at the Invisible Talks Conference, a new conference all about the creative process, which took place in January here in San Francisco. Jessie has a great sense of humor, she's wise, and she's got some amazing stories about taking risks, about her time starting Lumi, about her company Incodie before that, and the Kickstarter campaigns that she launched successfully very early on that platform. She talks about her first entrepreneurial endeavors in high school, starting a t-shirt printmaking company, And she really has incredible advice for people out there who are working on their own business or trying to push through and get a creative project going. I'm excited for you guys to hear the conversation. You're going to hear all the energy and excitement and enthusiasm that we bring to our live events with Making Ways. And let's get started. Hey, guys. Welcome to Making Ways Podcast Live. And let's give it up for Jesse Janae, who is the founder and CEO of Lumi, and uh, so excited to talk to her today. All right, let's get started. Hi, Jesse. Hi there. Welcome to the show. Thank you, glad to be here. Yeah, live at Invisible Talks. So for those of you who don't know, Lumi is really reimagining the packaging process in design and production, and I'd love for you to kind of explain to people what Lumi is. And then I also want to hear, we just had this New Year's celebration. I think everybody's aware of that. Um, And what's on the big whiteboard for Lumi in 2018? Okay, awesome. So Lumi is, we make packaging for modern brands and we're reimagining the way that the supply chain works for packaging. So when you have an idea and it needs to get from point A to point B, um, it can be really hard to actually source and then manage all the different supplies you need, because packaging isn't just boxes, but it's like printed packing tape and stickers and pack slips. And the average e-commerce business uses like a dozen different discrete items to to ship out their packages. So um, we're helping people consolidate. You have a dashboard where you can order everything. And um, and so we're really diving deep on software as well. When we sit down and we talk about 2018, like every entrepreneurial organization, I feel like it's like, we're gonna do everything in the world relating to packaging in 2018. Um, And (laughs) which is really fun, but then you try to narrow it back down and in essence, like something that we believe in is efficiency, uh, meaning like if there's 1,200 corrugated facilities around the nation, when you need boxes in Nashville, how can you get boxes as close as possible to Nashville so you don't have trucking and sustainability comes into play? So a lot of software around efficiency, um, and then the fun stuff is usually the design and the visual things. But nice, yeah. That's great, and we've got a room full of designers and artists and marketers and creative-minded business people. So I'd love to ask you about the unique role of a designer founder, because that's your role, and specifically the impact that a designer founder can have on an organization, on a product, and also to think kind of big picture, the impact it can have on kind of the culture and society and the way people interact with their things. 
I think that's really fascinating. I, I went to school for industrial design um, at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Um, I didn't graduate. Um, um, I'm not bragging about that. I just didn't. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> we can go into it later. Um, but in any case, um, like that's my background. I'm like a design school dropout, and now I run this company with 25 people and whatnot. And I think about it a lot because. I don't fit the prototypical like software company founder profile. Um, I'm not like an ex Googler who like went to Yale or something like that. Um, and and it impacts how we're perceived sometimes. But then the re like the rewards of our foundational knowledge and design. Everyone's, they're so apparent to everyone, like the investor community, our customers, that the rewards like more than make up for whatever perceived lack, I guess, in the early days you might have from a business perspective. Um, we, it, it's, it's this incredible experience where like things that are so obvious to us, like of course like we're gonna put like, you know, umpteen hours into like the user interface of this one aspect of the site so it's like really slick and smooth and you click the button and you feel amazing. Like, you know, like that whole, like the, the things that are so natural to us, um, people are like, whoa, I can't even believe you thought of that. And, and that, that makes me feel really good as a founder in the sense that like, I'm not at any disadvantage. In fact, the things that I know to be really important from my design background are the things that make Lumi, Lumi. Um, and so it, it, it um, and, and then to your more global point, um, I'm really passionate about making sure that people who have a design background never have what people commonly call like imposter syndrome. Like, because it's so common, and when I go, if I do like, um, I'll go to maybe a class and do like a little talk at Art Center, and I ask them like, how many of them are considering applying to Y Combinator? Um, and they're like, what's Y Combinator? Or, and things like that, and then if I, if I, if I was at a similar like class at like USC, or I'm, I live in LA, every hand would shoot up in like a business class of like, oh yeah, like I'm doing that, I'm doing that. And so I, I, I see that gap, and in, in it's really, I'm, I can't single-handedly solve it, but it's almost like a challenge of, it's fascinating, like how can we change that dynamic? Yeah, and you went to art school, and yeah. then you later went to Y Combinator. Yeah. So I'd love to hear about what your experience li was like in art school, kind of being on the, the edges, like being yeah. a little maybe business-minded for, yeah. for art school. And then I'm curious if later on, Y Combinator was kind of that like business school education that filled in the gaps. You, you're spot on with both things. Um, being, I started my first company when I was 16, like printing t-shirts in my parents' basement. Um, and so I like had this sort of business brain on, I'm not talking about like, I was an instant like business prodigy. I'm talking about like printing t-shirts in my parents' basement, okay? Um, but, I, but I just like had this concept that it's really interesting to use business, so to speak, as a tool for like getting things that I made out into the world, like that sounds fun, like that was the more simplistic um, concept that I had. And so when I went to Art Center, um, I would say I saw both things. Like I would see people have these incredible ideas and I'd feel like, wow, the, the, I can't wait to see these ideas go out into the world. I think where I got frustrated is like, I, I might be a little bit of that practically minded person where if I saw like an incredible design presentation, that like looks so cool. I really want it to be out into the world. And so I'd ask that person who created like, oh my gosh, what's your plan? Like, this is so cool. And like, how are you gonna do this? And how are you gonna do that? And, um, and sometimes I'd be frustrated that like, 
they, well, sometimes I got the response that I, I found really bewildering of like, oh, I'm not going to like push this out into the world. Like I'm moving on to the next thing or, um, just or the, doing art for art's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. It. And I was like, people need this thing. Like, um, <laughs> that was, I was always that kind of person of like, it's so good. Like you should really push this out into the world and sometimes be met with people who are like, didn't really want to do that or thought business was like kind of a dirty word of like, I can't start a business. Why would I? I'm an artist. Um, and, and it was so incongruous to me. I didn't know. I just thought it was like this natural path to try to do both. So um, that was interesting. And how did you end up, we got to answer the question, like how did yeah. you end up kind of deciding not to finish Oh, okay. Art school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're already Maybe back we to that. Know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, well, the truth, the truth of the matter is that um, Art Center is really expensive. So let's go back to the business brain. Art Center is really expensive. I can crack open Google Sheets like the rest of us um, and, and like notice that it, I'm broke. <laughs> um, and um, and I had, it, it's an interesting period of time. My co-founder, who is also at Art Center, who was just a friend at that point, talked about Kickstarter. It was, Kickstarter was brand new. This is 2009. And, a turning point was we posted this small Kickstarter campaign for a thing that we were working on at the time, and it raised $13,000. At the time, $13,000 is how much a one single term art center cost. And there was just this like mental awakening that I had where I was like, interesting. <laughs> um, in this world where I like put in effort and I did a cool thing and the world responded, I garnered $13,000 that came to me and I get to keep doing cool things. In this other world, I spend $13,000 and I'm supposed to keep doing that over and over again um, and I don't have it. So I, I really, in essence, kind of, um, I could have kept going, I could have got more student loans and everything, but I, I decided this is a time, like I, I, I'd been there for th like three, two thirds of the program and I was like, I think I should try to like stop going in debt now. And, and that's when you started Incodyne, Incodye, yeah. mm -hmm. which yeah. was kind of the first iteration of Lumi, which is this sunlight-driven printing process. Yeah. And, and this was one of the first, like, Kickstarters, right? It was back in, like, 2009. You had to explain what Kickstarter was to people, if you can yeah. imagine that. It's and so crazy. How, how quickly did that kind of take off as a business? Because you did a second Kickstarter in, like, 2012? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so... Um, it didn't take off as a business very quickly at all. <laughs> um, and yet I used it as my sole income. <laughs> so um, I, <laughs> um, basically, you know, we, we, it was a really early Kickstarter campaign. Um, we raised $13,000 and uh, had like 188 backers, which I thought was so many people. I was like 188 people relying on me to ship them a reward. It felt like, like the biggest responsibility I ever had in my life. Um, and, and essentially though, like we, it wasn't instantly a business. I just had this light bulb turn on of like why we should keep going with it. And it took us from 2009 it was such an early Kickstarter campaign that the founders of Kickstarter called us to be like, congrats. Perry and Yancy were like, hey, that's cool. Congratulations on that. And we helped them actually host their first LA meetup ever for Kickstarter wow. um, because we got to know them just a little bit, you know, personally over that experience. And then, you know, six months later, there was like $100,000 Kickstarter campaign or maybe very shortly after that. Maybe it was six months later, there was a million dollar campaign. Like everything went really fast on Kickstarter after that. Yeah. Um, 
So, but it, it took us, it took me probably at least 18 months from that point to turn the Incodai business into something that was like any level above subsistence. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And let's uh, rewind a bit. You are a very creative person. You have tons of energy and entrepreneurial spirit. And you talked about this first business you started in high school. As a kid, was creativity really important to you? Like, were you hustling back then? Were you, did you feel like you grew up in an environment where that was kind of nurtured and, and encouraged? What was, what was child Jesse like? That's an, in, that's an interesting question. I, I'm from um, suburban Detroit, uh, kind of like normal suburbs, I feel like America situation. And, um, and so it's like a nice, it was a nice upbringing, um, but a lot of things were more um, like put into place, meaning like it's type of environment where you grow up and someone's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And there's like a drop down menu and it's like dentist, lawyer, accountant, like nurse. And I didn't know there was other professions. Like I literally didn't know that. Like I was like, these are the professions. There's 10. Like um, <laughs> I guess like, I don't know when I'm 17, I'll pick or whatever. Um, and so I, I think there was like this big turning on in my brain through a variety of like inputs and sources and like the internet actually, I don't, I'm not like ancient, but like the fact that I was a teenager like using the internet this wouldn't have even been like a full thing several years before. I learned about the world a little bit and I decided like, I think I wanna create a different career path for myself. Um, and from that moment on, like it was, um, I knew I was gonna have to kind of like go it alone because my dad was a local lawyer, my mom was a school teacher, my, Everyone else in my family was a drop-down menu person. <laughs> They're great people, really, really great people. Um, I'm not judging that. It's more of like once I decided that I didn't want one of those things, I didn't know who to even ask about it, you know? Hey, everyone. I want to tell you about something you can do to help out making ways, and it won't cost you a dollar or a nickel or a hundred dollars. It's free, and it's leaving a review on iTunes. Leaving a review on iTunes is an amazing way for more people to discover the show. So if you like what you're hearing or if there's an episode that really resonated with you, write up a little note to us on iTunes, give us a five-star review, and let us know what you think of the show. Thanks so much, and now let's get back to the conversation. There was a couple moments in your life where you kind of like ditched everything and yeah. started anew. And I want to hear about basically your yeah. your family uh, mostly were University of Michigan alumni. Yeah. And I heard that you were all set to go to University of Michigan, yeah. and at the very last minute were like, I do not want to do this. Yeah. And you got in a car and drove to LA. This is all true information. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, this all checks out. <laughs> yeah. So I want to hear what was going through your mind when you yeah. said, "Screw all these expectations that my family has, that I have, that this school waiting for me has. I'm I'm gonna just take off and try something completely new." That I think. Then this is an interesting thing. Um, people. You know, at this point in my career, I just turned 30. I've done some like crazy things, especially with Lumi in the past like um, couple years, and like you know whether it's raising money or like getting interesting big customers or doing something crazy with software. And and people ask me about those challenges, like like that's the thing I've done. Like, how did you do X? And it's so recent for me. And I'm like, well, I did I did I give them whatever I know about it. But what's fascinating is like the thing you're talking about. That's the hardest thing I've ever done. Like. 
it's so hard to rewind back. I think when you're just getting started, some of those choices you're making, they're excruciatingly difficult. So to tell my family, who is all, like literally all U of M alumni, that like I got in and I'm all set to go, um, but I'm not gonna go, and I don't have a backup plan, um, and I'm not gonna be an accountant or whatever <laughs> was like the expectation um, was was all I all I knew how to do to do it was this will sound like maybe I don't even know how it will sound but um I used to have dinner every Tuesday with my dad and for since my parents got divorced we would do this as like our ritual and um, so I'm like 18 going on 19 and I came to I didn't know how to tell him that I was not going to U of M and I was moving away. And so like a teenager, like teenagers make terrible life choices. So I can't imagine how like, anyway, teenagers are weird. But <laughs> one, one Tuesday, I just go, I was like, I'm not gonna be a next Tuesday dinner. Like, and he was like, why? He's like, oh, you busy? And I'm like, no, I'm driving away and moving to California. <laughs> <laughs> And, and he was like, that's beyond then, pulling the bandaid off. That's yeah, like, and, and he was like, um, okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna start driving on Monday, so I won't be here next Tuesday. Like, it was like, first of all, I hope this is why I worry about having kids because I worry that I'm like gonna give birth to like devil spawn that does things like that to me. <laughs> like, because it's like that is so evil. Um, but that's what teenagers are like. They like don't have all the like tools to make good choices. Um, anyway. We're, we still had a good relationship after that, but it, but it was so jarring because I didn't know how else to announce this information. Because I was like, if I tell them in advance, like too much in advance, they're gonna convince me not to do it. So like, I'm just gonna put a thing on my calendar being like, Jesse drives away forever. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then I'll just like wait for it to like approach and then I'll just be like, so I'm driving away, like um, bye. And, and that's what I did. So I got in my car, I, had, I think I had like $2,000 that I'd saved from like doing random things and stuff. And I drove out here, and I didn't know anyone except one family friend, um, and I like figured it out. Yeah. What were you thinking though when you decided to take that plunge? Were you were you just trying to quickly reject kind of what <laughs> what was the standard place that everyone thought you should operate in? Were you yeah. just like craving some brand new experience? Like what was what was going on? I think I was thinking like. If I don't make this choice now, I don't know when I'm gonna make it. Because I knew, like, I, like, I hope no one misconstrues this, like, all those professions are amazing. U of M is amazing. Like, all these things that I could have done were, like, really great. And so I knew myself enough to know, like, if I start going to U of M, like, I'll fall in love with it. I'll be like, what was I thinking? This is a great school. Like, you know, that whole, like, thing. So I was like, if I want to have a different life, I don't even know exactly what different means. Like, I just need to do this, and this was like get in my car and drive away. So it was just more of like, I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I just knew that if I didn't make that choice then, it would, that choice would only get exponentially harder. I wasn't gonna make, I was gonna randomly drive away like during my third semester at U of M or whatever, like probably, I'd probably fall in love with it and have friends and like be a normal person or whatever. So yeah, <laughs> so, so I, I just had to like rip the bandaid off, yeah. Is that advice that you give to people or advice that you tell yourself in terms of like if you're stuck on something, just, just find a way to push yourself into the space and deal with it? Is that something you've kind of come back to when you're yeah. feeling stuck? I, something that I come back to is I think of risk as a muscle and I don't know why we all don't treat it that way. Meaning like, 
exercise early and often or don't expect to have much of a risk tolerance at all. Um, and so like you if you if you wouldn't expect like we talk about risk in a way that doesn't make sense if you think of it as like a muscle where it's like would you expect that you cannot work out for 10 years and then you're like but then I'm going to do the most epic workout of my life <laughs> and, and everything's going to be great yeah. like no but that's how we talk about risk we go like I'm I'm building up for it I'm building up for the risk because I'm like you know, whatever we all think, I'm putting money away, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and then I'm gonna do the risk. Like, the risk is out there, I will do it then. Uh, and then, like, then, you know, the glory shall be mine, or whatever. Um, so, we think of it that way, and, and, and sometimes preparation is important. I'm not, not advocating for preparation. But I guess what I'm getting at is, like, it's a fallacy to think that you cannot be taking risks during that period, and then, boom, biggest risk of your life, and it's gonna go great. No, you gotta big taking micro risks, and you gotta like front load the risk. It's so much easier to front load. It, again, that, that that exercise analogy I think is important. I love that. And so <laughs> you you went to art school. You left a little yeah. early because you're looking at that spreadsheet and the money dwindling. Um, and then Inco die. How much time did you spend on that? And and talk through those those years. So Inco die. Um, ends up being from about 2009 when we launched that first Kickstarter campaign. But it didn't really turn into any sort of business really until 2010 um, through to 2014, which is pretty recent in the scheme of things, it's a few years ago. Um, so 2014, and in those like four and a half years or where um, I'm running Inco dye, and it's a, it's a light sensitive fabric dye, I was a dye Entrepreneur, all right? <laughs> um, like and a fabric into, dye mogul. Yeah, and you had gotten into <laughs> printing in high school when you yeah. were working on your t-shirts, so this is like a This theme. is like a progression, yeah. right? Like, and that's how I got really into fabric dyes and inks because I had been printing t-shirts. Yeah, it's all a progression. Um, and, and when I get into doing Inco dye, like, I think this is another thing um, I think of, which is like, uh Like, I... I don't think that 18 or 19 year old me would be like, you know what my dream is? Like running a fabric dye business for four and a half years and then boom, I'll have a brilliant idea and I'll move on. Like, no, you, you can't, no one can play it forward like that. But I knew, like I love the idea, I love the product, I was having lots of fun, I was learning a tremendous amount about business and about life. And so I like knew it was correct. And instead of ditching it like six months in or 12 months in, I did it for four and a half years. Um, and we grew that company from nothing, like from a student project and some Kickstarters to the fabric dye was sold in over 1,500 stores at its height. Um, and it was like a seven-figure business that like, not high seven figures, okay? Don't get too excited. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but, <laughs> it, it, you know, but it was figures. like, but it's like a, it was a business. We had 10 employees, like we, 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 we manufactured the dye in LA. Like I was running a little dye shop, you know? Um, and and uh, so, I, but staying with it for four and a half years was the best thing I could have ever done because that's how I learned the like true lessons and those are the things, the insights that I'm using now to build Lumi are, are what I learned then. Yeah, and so we're approaching this kind of second critical juncture where you kind of ditch everything and start anew. And so Jesse was actually on Shark Tank with Inco Die, which was really fun to watch. I love that show. Um, you were great. And, um, and the business was going well, all these things, but it wasn't enough, it wasn't right, you were working all the time and you felt kind of like, this isn't really filling, 
fulfilling what I what I need to accomplish. So again, yeah. I want to yeah. hear about what happened during that time yeah. and the the changes you made to go in a completely different direction. I think I yeah. And I think as a designer, it can be especially difficult to like, I call it killing your babies. It's a little brutal, I know. Um, but, but sorry, I'm not going to really kill my babies. Um, but, but They're imaginary or paper. They're business paper. babies, okay? okay? So the business and idea in design babies, um, because it's like we fall in love with things. Like that's the nature of creation, right? Like why would, we, why would I be... I'm not like callous, like how could I spend four and a half years building up this dye business, all these products, like doing tutorials and like little fun things on the website and all this stuff, if I didn't really love it. Of course I did, of course I loved it. Um, but at a certain point I had achieved, like if it's like an asymptote, it's like I had achieved most of what I could ever do for that product and I was feeling a little exhausted, like the world just kind of wanted, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the whole world is paying attention to this, but like the, the, the people paying attention to this product and stuff wanted just more of the same, like more of that, more of that. The retailers who were selling our product would just like put out 10 more tutorials, even though I felt like I had done all the tutorials I could think of. Um, and I was feeling like, you know what? Sometimes you finish a thing, but here's the killing the babies part. I think we all want to like send them off to college. Like that, that would be nice. Like I, if I had take, been able to take that company and find like a really great future for it, but I couldn't. I, I realized like there um, not a lot of companies need to acquire another fabric dye line or like kind of whatnot. Um, and at the end of the day, if I wanted to move on, I had to close it down. Like if I wanted my time back, there was only so many options. Um, and that is, it is. I, it is one of the hardest things I've done in business um, is to take something that technically is working. That any, if you had any rational conversation with any friend of yours, they would be like, "You're talking about doing what? Like this business is making money and now paying you and like you ten people's salaries and everything, and you're just gonna be like, I'm done." Like it sounds really dumb when you say <laughs> it out loud. Like, and I had a bunch of conversations like that. Um, but you, there's only so much time in a day. And I wanted um, not like more, like I think that's a false way of thinking about it. I wasn't like, I wanna do something bigger and better or more. I wanted a new mental challenge. I was a different person four and a half years later. I wanted to do something that was now challenging afresh to me and it wasn't gonna be that. So like, I would, I would say that was with the, the sensation I had. Yeah, and was your process in approaching this decision very analytical and by the numbers? Was it gut and intuition? Like what was the combination there? Because especially if you're talking to yeah. friends and everyone's like, you're crazy, yeah. how did you find like the internal fortitude to make the choice? I think, I think of momentum a lot um, in, in life and, and I think especially like in the way that we do our careers, it's like there's certain momentum to things. Um, and as soon as I sense like the momentum waning or me like me not having the energy to push something's momentum along it's like an internal like gut check that like I need to change what I'm doing so Ingrid I had incredible momentum through 2014 2014 was its biggest year which makes it even more like crazy to other people like shut it down why it's doing great um and but I could tell like um, that that it's that its momentum was like at its peak that I had done everything I could do kind of for the brand and so I, I um, aspects were really personal. We're just like, I know 
that I don't want to keep driving this in the same way. But then the analytical part was like, I wonder if I can poke in and find other reasons for this. Um, and, and something that, uh, that I did find that I think is pretty fascinating is I looked through the like inbox, the email inbox for my company at the time, Incodai. People are emailing us. And I sorted by all the different types of questions people were asking us. And like, I forget now, it's like 20, like less than 20, around 20% or maybe even less of the questions that people were asking us were about Incodai. Um, another little proportion of them were like just kind of practical, like admin stuff or like where's my order type of things. And then a larger proportion, like over 50% of all of the emails we got were people being like, Tell me more about how you did your Kickstarter. Um, I really love your the bottle for your dye. Like, is that screen printed? Um, where did you where did you get the box made for your kit? Um, I love the kit. Who designed that? Um, so it was like, who designed it? Who made it? How did you do it? Did you have investors? Don't you? Essentially, I realized that the people we had kind of gathered towards us who were asking us things cared more about how we were building what we were building than, than our product. And that sort of brought me into what I do now, which is like, I get to help a lot more with the how now. Yeah. Yeah. And how much was Y Combinator? You got into Y Combinator. How yeah. much of that was part of this transition and, and, and jumpstart to the new idea that would become Lumi? It definitely was, um, it definitely was like a big culture shock. I was coming out of a bootstrap company um, run by myself and my design, you know, based co-founder as well, and we're, we sell fabric dye, okay? Like, the, it's like a whole scene, and then boom, like, I'm living in Mountain View, and people are like, what's your billion dollar idea, like, or whatever, you know? And I'm like, what is going on? Um, and um, it was, we, we had demonstrated enough and explained our idea, obviously, coherently enough to get into the program, but it was like a three-month crash course in not only it's not a business crash course, it's a crash course in very specific type of business um, that is around like high growth companies, what the expectations are for investment, um, as well as like the, the really nice root of it is, and there's a lot of incredible people there, are like people are wondering to themselves like, how can I take what I know that's valuable and truly affect the largest amount of people with that idea? Um, and you can have different belief systems on whether that's even right or wrong, but it is like a school of thought that they do really well there. Um, and, and it was, a lot of that was new to me. And, um, and I trust myself to kind of like use that information to build a cool and interesting business. Um, but it was a crash course in many ways. Yeah. And yeah. talk to me about the creative process yeah. and how you apply it not only to new products through Lumi, but also the business. Like where does it start for you and... Yeah. Go from there. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, and that is a fascinating question because, like, certainly Stefan and I are not entrepreneurs where it's like we found a market opportunity and we're like, that looks big. And then we're like, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's do this and then we'll build this or whatever. And, and I'm not trying to paraphrase anyone else, but it's like there's more of this sort of like business analysis way to start a business. And we were like, we felt a need. We were like, people need like if you're trying to start a swimwear company and you know everything about swimwear, why would you spend 60% of a week like researching flexographic printing on boxes? Like you should be working on swimwear. Like we felt this like real need of what people are going through when they try to launch products. And we were like, we can help that need. And so I think that starting with a need and like a real kind of um, feeling that you have for a certain type of group of people 
is part of our creative process for sure. And then from there, I know Stefan and I, like we and the whole the rest of the team, we present ideas to each other. Like it's a little bit kind of like a crit. Like it's like, we will be like, here's the problem set and here's the things and what if the approach was this? And we kind of like paint a scene, paint a world. Like the world would be like this if we went down this path. Mm. And then someone would be like, oh, interesting, but here's the flaws. And then it's like, all right, okay, what about this? Like the world would be like this if we built this, you know? And kind of this um, really painting a scene compared to just analyzing it for whether it could work is I think part of our process for sure. That's really interesting of starting with the visualization of not only like the outcome of the product, but how does the world look once yeah. this product is in, out there and customers and that's yeah. really neat. That, yeah. would be, that would be a really cool thing to take into practice. Um, another fun thing about Jessie uh, that you guys may not know is that she lives in an Airstream trailer um, <laughs> right by her office yes, and true. that you own and it's your home and all these things. And I'd love to hear about your philosophy around simplification yeah. and how that might help fuel the creative process and also productivity. That, yeah, I, it's all true. Again, everything he said, I can corroborate this. Um, I live in an Airstream trailer. I've done it for almost two years, which like when I first moved in, I was like, what did I do? Like, this is insane. Um, and, and I thought I'd move out kind of quickly. And now two years later, I'm, I'm still doing it. Um, and there's a couple things about simplification. One, I've kind of turned my business and creative life into quite a complicated thing. And so there's a nice yin-yang balance of like, when I go to my personal life, it's a tiny trailer and it's really simple. Um, and so I get that like mental freedom back. Like if I had like a big complicated house to take care of, it's like more things to take care of. So I kind of give myself more mental room to think about work and creativity because I give myself less to take care of um, on the personal side sometimes through things like the Airstream. And, um, and I think that Giving yourself, and then there's another really practical thing that I think sometimes people, especially sometimes as creatives, we don't talk about enough, which is like, at the end of the day, you can only do your best like creative work if you're surviving, right? Like I know that sounds kind of basic, um, but it can be the hard part. Um, and so I am now, like I have a, a company that's doing well, like I'm doing more than surviving, but I like to, um, but I've definitely, I've spent a ton of time in survival mode though. And, and so I like, I like to kind of keep that alive in my heart in the sense that like, just cause I could move into an apartment in LA or whatever, like what doesn't mean I should. If I keep my like level of expense in the way that I run my personal life, it means I retain more creative freedom. Like I could decide to downsize something or I could decide to um, make a more radical choice because I don't have, um, something else really expensive or some barrier for my own lifestyle that I've set that I can never go like fall below or I'll feel weird or something. So I think um, all of those are really good reasons why I've tried that. Yeah, it sounds like it clears up a lot of headspace to yeah. focus on the things that, that matter. Yeah. Guys, give it up to Jesse for joining us today. This is awesome. Thank you. That was my conversation with Jesse Janae, the founder and CEO of Lumi. You guys should check out Lumi at lumi.com. You can learn all about their story there, about their amazing products. I think they can really help out listeners who have any kind of commerce business. 
medium, small, large, everything in between. And Jesse, thank you so much for joining the show and sharing so much with me and the audience. Thanks to Invisible Talks for having us. It was such a blast. Ariana, Dava, Elena, the whole team there, everyone who volunteered, all the amazing speakers and everyone in attendance that I got to meet was just wonderful and full of creative energy and excitement and had really great stories to share too. Be sure to subscribe to Making Ways wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter also at makingways.co. You should leave us a review on iTunes. It's a really powerful way for more people to learn about the show. Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and we've got some music by Jim Heffernan in the mix too. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.